Past, present, future, live. In-depth conversations and exclusive live performances featuring some of the most dynamic artists from the world of contemporary music. From Osiris Media, this is Past, Present, Future Live. I'm your host, RJB. Welcome back to Season 2. We're excited to bring you a brand new season which has some amazing guests. In upcoming episodes, you'll hear interviews with Nicole Atkins, Calexico, MC Taylor of His Golden Messenger, Larkin Poe, Alex Skolnick of Testament, Jessica Dobson of Deep Sea Diver, and many other amazing musicians. And this week, we have something very special. We talked to John Oates, best known, of course, for his long career with Daryl Hall and John Oates. But his career is much broader than just the Hall and Oates days. He's been making really great bluegrass and Americana records and putting on high-energy live shows with a good road band, including a new live release, Live from Nashville. John and I talked about his upbringing in Philadelphia and, as he says, music before rock and roll. We talk about his origin story with Daryl Hall and how they rose to tremendous fame in the 1970s and 1980s. We also talk about how he gave all that up, moved to Colorado, started over, and then moved to Nashville and started the Good Road Band, and how all of that brought everything full circle for him musically. This was a really fun conversation for me, and I hope you all enjoy it. After the interview, you'll hear John perform the Creole Bell Spike Driver Blues Medley by Mississippi John Hurt, Had I Known You Better by Daryl Hall and John Oates, and Send Me Somebody to Love by Percy Mayfield. You can see the videos of John's performances on our show page, which is linked in the show notes. And you can find a Spotify playlist based on this episode in the show notes as well. Before we get into the episode, I want to tell you about Sunset Lake CBD. Every night after I get the kids to bed and I'm winding down, I eat a CBD gummy from Sunset Lake. It makes me feel super relaxed, calm, and ready to move slowly towards sleep. The Vermont-based Sunset Lake grows CBD hemp that's 100% pesticide-free, and they use only organic fertilizers. To get 15% off your first order, go to sunsetlakecbd.com and enter the promo code PPFL15. And now, here's my interview with John Oates. Enjoy. All right, I'm here with John Oates. John, thank you so much for joining us. Well, it's a pleasure to be uh, at home and uh, looking at you on my screen. <laughs> um, we're really happy to have you and listeners are going to be able to hear and, and watch some awesome tunes from John at the end. So stay tuned for that. And, and John, we want to talk about Live in Nashville, which came out earlier this year. As a follow up to Arkansas, which came out in 2018, you've been putting out a lot of new music and we're going to get to that. I do want to go all the way back and ask if you have an earliest musical memory. Oh, I sure do. I got a lot of them. Um, I think my earliest musical memory is when I was a really, see, I'm not afraid to admit it, but I was uh, old enough to remember music before rock and roll. And uh, when I was a really little kid, my folks moved to Pennsylvania, but the rest of the family was in the New York area. So every weekend we would drive from Pennsylvania to New York. And as we would get close to New York City, we'd start picking up the radio stations from New York City. And there was one station called um, Make Believe Ballroom, and they played the big band music of my parents' generation. 
And of course, that's what my parents loved to listen to. So on the little crackly, you know, car AM radio, um, I would hear Glenn Miller and Tommy Dorsey and Lionel Hampton and, you know, uh, Duke Ellington and all that kind of stuff. And really uh, being, I, I was musically attuned, even at a very early age, I used to sing as a, literally as a baby. And so that music uh, really seeped into me. Um, and then I remember, you know, probably a, a very important memory is I remember in Pennsylvania uh, when the first radio station decided to play rock and roll. They made a big deal out of it. They kept saying, starting on Saturday, you know, or well, I don't know, whatever day it was, you know, starting on Saturday, we're going to an all rock and roll format. And that was like, whoa. Because, you know, before that, they played all this like real corny stuff like Patty Page and, you know, Perry Como and all this stuff that was like in between big band and rock and roll, it was like this era of about 10 years where nothing was really happening. So then uh, I remember when they went to rock and roll, that was, it was really amazing. I used to tune into this one station all the time. And of course, I heard Chuck Berry and Little Richard and Elvis and Fats Domino and all that. Do you remember it being controversial? I remember it being a big deal. Um, yeah. We lived in a little neighborhood and the what the kid next door was a teenager, you know, and uh, he had a car and he would wash his car in the driveway with the radio on, you know, with the rock and roll station. Uh -huh. on, you know? And I used to just hang out and uh, sit on, sit there and listen to it, you know, so yeah. I feel like that's a scene from a movie or, or many scenes it is, from many It's kind of like American graffiti type thing. But, <laughs> right, but right. honestly, you know, a younger generation, music is everywhere now. You know, it's on the web. It's in, it's on your phone. It's, it's in the air. You know, it's on commercials. But in those days, it wasn't everywhere. You know, it was like few and far between that you could hear music. You either had to buy a record and play it in your house or hear it on the radio. And that was it. It, it meant a lot. It had a lot more meaning. Do you remember those things coming together and helping form your identity as someone who wanted to play music early well, on? Like, Yeah, I mean, right away, uh, especially with Chuck Berry and Elvis, I wanted to play the guitar. Uh, my mom gave me um, music lessons. The only teacher in the little town where I grew up was an accordion teacher. Okay. And um, I took an accordion lesson, then I took the little starter accordion, and I put it in a closet until the following lesson, then I went back. After like two or three lessons, the teacher went, I don't think he's practicing. And I said, no, I'm not, because I hate it. And I said, I want to play the guitar. And uh, I got a guitar at six years old and never, never looked back. So That's amazing. I feel like at this point, I could find, you know, 15 guitar teachers in my neighborhood for my kids, like yeah, right now. Right. Right? And, about, and about 400 on YouTube. Right, right, right. 300, 390 of them don't know what they're doing, though. <laughs> right, right. right. That's amazing. Do you remember music playing around the house? Like, were your parents musical? Were they exposing you to music? Um, you know, they weren't that musical, although they liked music. They liked the music of their youth, you know, the, of their teenage years, the big band music. So I heard a lot of that. So I have that kind of deep in my musical DNA. It came out a lot on this Live from Nashville album, where I got to explore swing and ragtime and a lot of that stuff. It kind of unlocked the, uh, the portal to go back in time, you know, and to explore some of the music that was made in the early, early days of, of American popular music. I was actually going to ask you when we start talking about that in the present kind of portion, it does feel like it's full circle for you in terms of what I've read about your musical influences yeah. and what you grew up with. It's really cool. And it's a really cool album. Thanks. Did you go to concerts? Do you remember any concerts that you that you went to where you saw people performing and were kind of hooked? The first time I ever heard live music or saw live music, I saw Bill Haley in the Comets play Rock Around the Clock at, wow. at, a, at an amusement park band show. 
at a place called, oh, well, you might even know it, Willow Grove Amusement Park. Okay. Yep. It was near the Willow Grove Air Station. The air station was on one side of the road and the amusement park was on the other. Now, that was only about, you know, 10, 12 miles from where I grew up. So, you know, we would go there on the weekends and we, you know, as a little kid, we'd go on the rides and stuff. And um, I remember one time um, I went, this band was playing. I, I actually didn't know who they were at first. Um, but the thing I remember most about it, the upright bass player, because it was a rockabilly band mm-hmm. and the upright bass player, he rode the bass like a horse. And as a little kid, and I remember running right down to the front of the stage because the stage was probably only two feet high. You know, it was like this little stage in a band shell and, uh, you know, with a bunch of families sitting at picnic tables. And I saw I saw Bill Haley play Rock Around the Clock in 1954, I guess it was. Wow. Did that change your perspective in terms oh, yeah, of performance? That, 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 yeah, that really freaked me out. That was like, yeah, OK, wow, this is amazing. I didn't know what it was, but I knew it was cool. You know, that's really cool. So as you got a little bit older, uh, assuming your teenage years, you're starting to play more guitar and listen to more music. Were there things that you discovered on your own outside of your parents in those years that really like grabbed your attention? Yeah, well, you know, I took I took vocal lessons and guitar lessons uh, right around seven or eight years old. And uh, I got to the point uh, when I was about nine or 10 that I could accompany myself on guitar and sing at the same time. And of course, at the time, you know, what I wanted to do was play the, the, the rock standards, you know, the simple stuff, uh, the simple three chord rock and roll that Chuck Berry was doing and stuff like that. Um, one of the first songs I actually performed and was able to play and sing was Oh Lonesome Me by Don Gibson, which I covered on the album. Yeah, yeah. You know, I'll go back to the, to the new album again. Every song on that has a personal connection to me in some way or another. It seems somewhat rare in that era to have parental support for music. I didn't grow up in that time, but it feels like parents at that time were like a little bit more rigid, but it sounds like your parents were supportive. You're right. You're, you're absolutely right. It was that, that era. My mom was a bit of a stage mother. I think she lived vicariously through my talent, uh, you know, mm-hmm. and not in, I'm not saying that in a negative way. Mm-hmm. I, I kind of resented it a lot as a little kid because she pushed me to do a lot of things I didn't want to do. Like I had to get dressed up and play these little kitty shows and do these weird things. Um, like I played a Christmas show at an insane asylum. Um, wow. Yeah, which was very bizarre and really frightening. Um, I can't even describe what I... I it sounds have, so scary. It is. You'd have to read my book. There's a chapter in yeah. my book. But yeah, you know, she dressed me up and I'd have to wear a little blazer and sing these songs, everything from Broadway show tunes to standards, you know, like Five Foot Two and, uh, you know, The Bells Are Ringing for Me and My Gal, oh, wow. also a song I still play today. Uh-huh. Certain things you can't shake, right? Yeah. <laughs> uh, and, uh, you know, but meanwhile, the kids were going on rides at the amusement park. And I was like, I had to stand there in a monkey suit, you know, to sing a song. Well, of course, you know, I didn't like it in those days. But um, but now, you know, of course, I'm really appreciative of the fact that she pushed me to do this stuff. Were you appreciating the music while you were doing those things or did it not seem like music? Uh, it was kind of corny, you know, uh, here again. You know, uh, like especially with the vocal lessons and stuff, you know, the only thing I liked about taking vocal lessons was the the girl who played piano was a teenage uh, girl and she was really cute. So I got to sit on the piano bench next to her while she played being like nine, nine, ten years old. You know, that was pretty cool. Yeah, that seems like a good perk. Um, So (laughs) so you went to Temple not too far from home for college. Took the were path you, of least resistance. <laughs> were you playing music pretty consistently at that point? Were you in bands and, and yeah, things yeah. going into it? I was in a band from eighth grade. Uh, in eighth grade, I joined a, a band that was older than me. The guys were, I think they were in 10th grade. And they had a group. It was uh, guitar, 
sax, organ, and drums. Okay. I don't know how we met. I, you know, it was a small little town. But anyway, as it turned out, I was a better guitar player than the guitar player was. So he switched to bass. Um, and I played guitar and sang. And I became their singer, basically. And that group, I stayed with that group from eighth grade through 12th grade. And then uh, right around graduation time, we, uh, we, you know, we were pretty popular in the area. We played a lot and um, we added a horn and, you know, we did a lot of R&B and, you know, uh, soul, a lot of soul stuff uh, from the time. And um, we scraped up enough money to make a record in, in Philadelphia. We went to Philadelphia, hired a studio, and that was the summer of 67. And we did that. And now I had gone to Temple University in the um, spring of 66. So that summer, you know, I'd been in college one year. Daryl Hall was recording the exact same time in the summer of 67 with his group. Of course, we didn't know each other. But both those records came out in uh, late 67 and were being played on Philadelphia R&B stations. So we were aware of each other. And eventually that led to us meeting. So. Wow. That's really cool. At that time when you're playing music, what was sort of the driver for you? Was it the songwriting? Was it the singing? Was it the guitar? I really wasn't songwriting a lot. I was really playing cover music, you know. Okay. Um, yeah. But really, that's uh, that's how you um, that's how you find yourself creatively. You know, you play the songs that you like. You play the music of the people you admire, and in doing so, you kind of unpack what it is that they're doing. You know, whether you you're aware of it or not, just learning the chords and sure, any, anybody can play three chords right but it's the notes that you choose to sing over those three chords that makes you unique um and sure there's a lot of permutations of those there's only you know there's only 12 notes but there's a lot of a lot of ways you can combine them so i think that's what i was doing my whole youth until really it was time to make this record and i wrote a song with our bass player and uh, we wrote two songs because we wanted to record something we needed a song and it was pretty simple little r&b song that sounded like uh, what was being played on the radio at the time and the group was called the masters the song was called i need your love mm -hmm. uh, it came out on a label called crimson records which um their claim to fame was they had a, they released a, a single called expressway to your heart by the soul survivors okay yeah a fairly big single yeah yeah um, we were the second out second record that ever came out on that label and i think that was it i think you know it was a Wow. Very small little label in Philadelphia. So, um, you know, and Daryl was essentially doing the same thing with his group. Before you met Daryl, like, did you know that you wanted to be a musician as a career? Or was it still just a fun hobby? I never questioned it. You know, um, it was one of those things where I just did it and people seemed to always like what I did, whether it was, you know, with my singing for my family when I was a little kid or doing little talent shows, as I said, as I was growing up. And then once I started in the band, you know, everybody, we were like the hot band in high, in the high school. You know, it was kind of one of those things where I always got some kind of positive reinforcement for everything I did when it came to music. Yeah. Um, so because of that, I never thought about it. I just kept doing it. I mean, I think if people would have started throwing shit at me and, you know, um, booing, I maybe would have considered another career path. <laughs> but uh, since that never really happened, I kind of kept on going. So you meet Daryl in 1970. I mean, no, 68. 68. In 68. Okay. So you, what kind of draws you to each other? It sounds like you guys knew of each other making music. I heard his song on the radio and he heard my song on the radio. We were independently, both groups were invited to go to a record hop, which was a teenage dance that was held by a DJ. It was in a bad neighborhood in Philly. It was in West Philly. We went there 
to lip sync our singles because the DJ was playing our records. Mm -hmm. We were backstage with a group called the Five Stair Steps, which fairly well-known vocal group out of Chicago, and a guy named Howard Tate who had a really one song called Look at Granny Run Run, which is actually a really good song. Okay. And now that I thought about that again, I think I'm going to record that. Anyway, <laughs> um, and uh, a big gang fight broke out and Daryl's group and my group got in an elevator. We went down to the street level and that's how we met. Literally, hey man, yeah, I heard your record. You know, yeah, well, yeah, we'll see you around, you know. Yeah, and, yeah. yeah we, Philadelphia was, you know, it was small, you know, small little scene. And um, two of the guys in my group got drafted into Vietnam. I, um, I joined Daryl's group as a backup guitar player, and uh, that group fell apart shortly thereafter, and he and I kind of hung out. That's crazy. Um, I mean, it's fair to say you hit it off in, in a long-term kind of friendship. Not, well, we didn't at first. Um, okay, okay. We enjoyed hanging out and being hippies in downtown Philly, but we actually didn't record or write or play at all. You know, we shared an apartment at first and then, you know, and then I had a girlfriend, I lived with her and Daryl had a place and we, we lived near each other a few blocks apart. And, you know, I kind of scrounging around down. He was doing some studio work and playing in a bar band at night. I was playing in a blues band and I was playing a lot of folk clubs. And then in 1970, after I got out of college, I went off to Europe. I, I wanted to go to Europe and, and just go. Uh, so I went off with a backpack and a guitar and a couple hundred dollars and uh, hitchhiked around Europe. Um, and during that summer, it was the summer of 1970, I sublet my apartment to Daryl's sister and her boyfriend. And uh, when I came back, it was like, I left in June, came back in late September with no money and went to the apartment. There was a padlock on the door and because they never paid the rent. <laughs> um, and so I literally walked down the street to where Daryl was living and I knocked on his door and said, hey, man, your sister kind of screwed me here. Man. I'm like, what do I do? And he's like, oh, don't worry about it. Come on in, live here. So I moved into the up, little upstairs, like a living room thing in this little tiny house. And uh, that's where his piano was. Mm. He'd come up and he'd sit at the piano and start playing. And I'd have the guitar and I started playing and that we started writing songs. Wow, that's incredible. What is it about each of your like styles or personalities that makes you guys, made you able to work together that well and, and continue through today, I think? I think we both had a really uh, strong drive to be good uh, at what we were doing. We had a lot of the same musical influences because he grew up in a small town in Pennsylvania. I grew up in a small town. We listened to the same radio stations. So we had this common language, musical language. But at the same time, we had a lot of different things. He had classical training and uh, grew up in singing in church. Um, he had the gospel thing. I had a lot more folk, blues, roots music experience, and I brought that to the table. He brought what he, a more sophisticated thing to the table, taught me a lot about chords and a lot of uh, theory and stuff like that. And I taught him a lot about roots music, basically. So that's we kind of blended that together in a weird way. And it's it's not that noticeable of, of you know the various individual influences because the more we work together we became one person mm -hmm. and our, our influences really came together and and evolved from there so you don't hear the purity of either of our influences as much but what you hear is this unique blending of, of personalities 
Yeah, that's that's what I hear. You know, I've heard your music since I was a kid, and I, it never occurred to me that there was. You know, I knew there were two people, but it, it seemed like it was one identity. You know, yeah, and yeah. It, yeah. musically, it seems like you guys really knew what you were doing. Did you approach it as like a this is going to be a business partnership endeavor? From my perspective, it looks like it was like very well planned. Because of our success, you, one might assume that, but it was far from the truth. We had no idea, and but well, the one thing we did have an idea about. This this kind of was the driving force behind everything we did. We weren't sure if we were going to be successful. We didn't know uh, if we would make it or not, but we didn't really care about that as much as we cared about what can we do to keep being musicians? Because he he was the exact same as me. He was from a little kid. He was a singer. He was, you know, his mother taught him how to sing. You know, we had the same exact upbringing. And he knew one way or the other he was going to be making music. I didn't know if I was going to be teaching guitar lessons or, you know, I might be a studio musician, um, might be playing in a bar band, who knows? But it didn't matter because we were going to figure out a way of doing that. And that was our goal, that the success and the, um, especially the commercial success, all that came as a byproduct of hard work, dedication and, and talent, really. You know, it's just one of those things I, I always, you know, people always ask me, well, what advice would you give a young performer? I said, well, you know, don't don't focus on being famous. You know, being famous and making a lot of money is great, but it should be a byproduct of learning your craft, being dedicated, being a professional, and doing all the right things to get there and let that happen, uh, as opposed to having that as your goal. Because if that becomes your goal, it's really a hollow goal, and more than likely, it's not going to last. Mm. Um, so he and I just, uh, you know, he wasn't happy with what he was doing. I wasn't happy with what I was doing. And we said, you know what, let's just play some songs. Well, let's write some songs. You know, he had some songs he wrote that I didn't write. I had some songs I wrote that he didn't write. So when he would do a song, I would accompany him. When I would do a song, he would accompany me. And little by little, that thing began to meld together. And we said, you know, let's go out and play. Uh, let's go play the our local like uh, art gallery. So we'd go to the local art gallery. we put up posters, you know, in the little hippie neighborhood where we live. And it was the funny thing was the only people that came to see us were the same people that lived on our block. <laughs> so we, we'd play a show and we'd be there and it would be like the same, you know, the, the guy who sold pot and the, the girl who was like, you know, I was trying to go out with. Yeah. It was, like, was weird, man. But, you know, uh, but it was fun. And, and that's what we did. And, and then what happened was we, we did that for a little while and started getting this little local reputation. And then there was a telethon in Philadelphia um, for a charity like one of those Jerry Lewis kind of mm -hmm, things. Mm -hmm. Someone asked us if we would do it and we did it and we played a couple songs and everything changed. I guess it's the proof of the power of television. Uh, we'd walk down the street and people go, I saw you guys, you guys are amazing. And we're like, really? We're, oh, wow. <laughs> um, and you know, and there was this great FM station called WMMR and uh, there was a disc jockey called Gene Shea who just passed away recently. Yeah. 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 And uh, Gene had a Sunday night show that went on around midnight and he went to like three in the morning. And it was those days of underground radio where you could play anything you want. And we would literally go, we would take Daryl's piano, his electric piano, and we'd carry it in the elevator into this little office building on Rittenhouse Square. And we'd go upstairs and I'd bring my guitar and we'd sit there with Gene Shea and we'd play songs in the middle of the night. And then he'd play songs for us on records that we had never heard, you know? And so it was really a, a cool thing to do. And little by little that led us to getting a record contract. 
those years to me seem so rich musically. There's, you know, classic rock, Motown, folk. I mean, the singer-songwriters are all out there. What was driving you? Were you listening to everything or were there things that you were particularly well, at, interested at in? at first, because we didn't have a band, it was just the two of us. It was the singer-songwriter thing. It was very popular in the early 70s. Uh, you know, Jackson Brown, Joni Mitchell, you know, all that stuff. So, of course, you know, we were doing this very, you know, acoustic-based, uh, very uh, pastoral kind of thing. It wasn't long before we found a bass player and a drummer, a local guys in Philadelphia, and we began to ratchet up the energy a little bit, but it was still acoustic based. Uh, and that led us to our first album, which here again was very innocent uh, singer songwriter acoustic kind of thing. Um, it's called Whole Oats. People Whole Oats, don't yeah. know that that's our first album. Most people think Abandoned Luncheonettes are our first album, which kind of is. I like the name. What's that? I like Whole Oats. Oh, you do? Yeah, 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 yeah. It's, it's interesting. You can hear the origins of everything from that you album. Wanna hear, you want to hear something, a funny story? Yeah. In the late 70s, we were out in L.A., and uh, or maybe, no, it was mid-80s, I guess it was. And we played a big show in L.A., and uh, we had a party, after party. And, of course, we were pretty popular at the time. Mm -hmm. And Axl Rose came to our after party. And he sat down with us, you know, and we started talking. And he said his favorite album was Whole Oats. Wow, really? Was like, and he kept saying, yeah, I love Waterwheel and Georgie. And we're like, really? We're like, <laughs> you know, we're thinking, here's this cool L.A. heavy metal dude, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's awesome. That's cool. You were reaching a lot of people, obviously. I mean, this, this, you know, we could spend an hour on the kind of years of Hall and Oats, but I just want to touch on this briefly. So you guys do several albums. I mean, you're, you had in the span of, I guess, 10 years or so, a bunch of hit albums and six number one singles. And I mean, you guys were on a rocket ship. What did that feel like for you? Did it feel like you were on a rocket ship? You, you described it perfectly felt like we were on a rocket ship. Uh, it was, you know, people over the years have always said, well, wow, the 80s, man, you guys must have had so much fun. It must have been so great. MTV, you were everywhere, right? Hits. But honestly, the 70s were way more fun um, mm. because we were, everything was new. Every city we went to was new. We didn't have demands of, of success. We could go, you know, we, we'd go play at college in Louisiana. We'd stay there for three days and hang out and party with local, the locals. Right, yeah. You know, it was a whole different thing. We traveled in a band. You know, we did all that for 10 years, really. I mean, sure, we had our mid-70s success. We played at bigger venues. But uh, the 80s, once the 80s started, I swear we didn't have time to catch a breath. It was like, write some songs, record them, make videos, go on tour, come back, write songs, record. And we did that straight. Honestly, we really did that straight from 1972 until 1986. We made an album every year from 72 to 86, sometimes more than one because we had live albums and compilations. Never stopped ever. When you were at the peak of that, were you like, this is what I had set out to do as a career? No, I was like, this is what I didn't set out to do. <laughs> it was like, be careful what you wish for kind of moment. Yeah. Um, no, it was it was so intense that I didn't even have time. Reflection wasn't in the cards. It was There was no time to think about anything. In fact, that's why in, in 87, uh, after we did We Are the World and Live Aid and uh, the Apollo Theater with Eddie, Eddie Kendrick and David Ruffin, Daryl and I really said, this is too much. There's only one way to go from here, and that's down. And we didn't want to do that. We didn't want to be trying to, you know, stay on top and have that pressure to, okay, we're on the top of the world. We got to stay there. We got to stay there. It becomes a desperation. You see that in a lot of artists. It's kind of sad and, and really uh, 
you know, just not healthy. Um, and we stopped. We literally stopped in the late 80s. We made a record in 88 and one in 89 or 90. Um, but essentially we weren't working. And um, then I moved to Colorado. I sold everything I owned. Um, I changed my life completely, left New York City skied and hiked in the mountains, hung with a different group of people, didn't really do any music at all for almost 10 years. Uh, Daryl and I made one record in 96. And then I uh, started getting itchy to make, make music again, do something. I had some friends in Colorado who had a band and they kept asking me to jam with them. So I jammed with them a little bit and that got the juices flowing. Uh, that led me to, to go into Nashville and start to write and to meet new people. And uh, that really led to my Nashville experience in the early 2000s. Can I go back a second for this, where you sold everything and moved out of New York City? <laughs> like, was there a moment when you when you decided? It seems like a rash move, but maybe it was well planned. Was there a moment when you were like, "I gotta, I gotta change this"? Uh, no, you know what happened. I, I mean, I don't like to dwell on it. I had some business issues. You know, our manager had left. We had a lot of things left uh, that Daryl and I didn't attend to on the business side. We were not, you know, while we were running around the world being pop stars, we weren't paying any attention to the business. And as you said early, early in this interview, uh, people get screwed. Well, you know, we're, we're right up there, you know. What happened was um, I, I had a come to Jesus moment in terms of business. Mm-hmm. Um, I also had gotten divorced. Mm-hmm. And uh, I felt like if I just stayed in New York, I was just going to go down the same road. And nothing good was going to happen. Yeah. And I had this little condo in Aspen, Colorado that I had. Um, and I literally sold everything I owned, everything. I had an apartment in New York, a house in Connecticut. I had freaking cars and I had an airplane. You know, I really had a lot of stuff. And I sold it all. And I literally spent a year riding my bike. I didn't even have a car. Um, I rode my bike for a year. I took the bus in Colorado, went skiing every day, skied 100 days a year, really got my skiing act together, Uh, hiked in the mountains, hung out with a group of friends who had, they didn't even know I was a musician for half the time I was there, you know. Wow. That's what happened. And of course, I met my current wife. We've been together for 25 years and had a kid, built a house, did all the things I couldn't do in the 20 years that I was on the road. Thanks for sharing that. I mean, that's that's an amazing change, and, and you're able to do it successfully. Well, I didn't know what was going to happen. I just went for it. I was wondering if you had those times when you're touring, just because you guys were two of the most recognizable people in the world for a while there. And like, do you have to wear disguises and stuff like going into your hotel? Was it like that level of, you know, you felt like you couldn't even be to yourself? Sort of. Um, when we were on the road, it was like that because we were in small towns and going to cities where where your awareness was up because they everyone knew you were there. But, you know, I, I made a conscious decision to live in three places where no one cares if you're famous. New York City, Aspen, Colorado and Nashville, Tennessee. <laughs> um, you know, I can go to Whole Foods and it doesn't matter. You know, yeah, I, go, yeah. I, see Keith, I see Keith Urban, you know, there, yeah, yeah. you know, uh, so it doesn't matter, you know, um, yeah. and people are nice, you know, hey, I like your music or whatever. Yeah. You know? Yeah. You know, the, the kind of the, the, the sheen of the pops thing has worn off, but it, there's still the recognize, you know, I'm still recognizable, but not in a, in a way that, that makes me feel uncomfortable. Yeah, that makes sense. So so when you move to Colorado, I, I want to ask about, I talked to a lot of artists about this kind of sense of place and how that influences music and, you know, listening, performing, writing. It sounds like that change from New York to Colorado and earlier from Philly to New York, it did change everything for you. Do you remember musically? Did you change gears in terms of what you were listening to, what you were thinking about? 
you know, the, the roots of our music, uh, the stuff that we grew up on, it was the, the sound of the, of the music we heard on Philadelphia radio. There's no doubt about that. And the experience of growing up there. When we moved to New York, it was all about New York. It was it was what happened in New York, the sound of the city, the, the speed of the city, the, um, you know, moving to New York in the 70s. I, I don't know if you've ever seen any information about it, but New York in the 70s was not the New York of today. It was dirty. It was dangerous. It was funky. I remember, you know, when I lived in the village, I used to walk to Electric Lady Studios and stuff. And when I'd come home in the middle of the night, I used to carry a blackjack in my pocket because you never knew if you're going to get jumped or, you know, I mean, it was crazy. But that was the edge, you know, that was the energy. And that edge and energy led to the new wave and the punk stuff that was happening. And I was very much involved in all that. I, I used to go see Patti Smith and the group television. Um, I played, you know, I even did some shows with a, this punk chick named Judy Nylon. And, um, <laughs> you know, it was, it was really, I kind of jumped into this world just to see what it was about. And I, and I, you know, we hung out with Andy Warhol and all that kind of stuff. So um, it, it was cool to be there then. Uh, and then by the eighties, you know, like I said, we were so busy. We were never really home ever. Mm -hmm. You know, it was either, we wrote for a couple of weeks, recorded for maybe a month and then immediately did videos and immediately went on the road for about six or seven months without stopping. And then just came right back and did it again. So it was a, like I said, super intense. And, and once you're in Colorado and you're... Um... I, I shut everything off. I shut everything off. Leaving the past behind. That's what I wanted to do. And I needed it. It was like therapy for me. I had to, I had to go through that to cleanse my soul of, of everything, to find out where I could go in the future. And really, music became part of my life and not only the only thing in my life. You know, so my family was important. You know, I wanted to, I wanted to spend as much time as I could with my kid because we homeschooled him. You know, so we were together all the time as a family. So it really made a huge difference. And you probably knew that you'd come back to music at some point. I mean, yeah, of course. But I didn't know how. I didn't know what that would be or how it would be. And I didn't know. I didn't know it was going to be Nashville. It just turned out that way. And your first solo album was in 2002. It sounds like maybe several years before that you started getting back into music more. The first solo album was called Feng Shui. It was kind of like it was I did it a lot with with the band in, in Colorado, the guys I was playing with. It was really kind of a get it out of your system kind of thing. It was like I didn't know what I was doing. I didn't know who I was. I, you know, I didn't know who I could be as a solo artist. I just I had some songs, some old songs on some old tapes. I drug those up. I, I wrote a couple new ones. I said, ah, it was a hodgepodge. It had no direction. You know, there were some nice moments on the record, um, but it had no real cohesiveness. It wasn't really until I decided to make uh, this solo album in 2007 in Nashville, Thousand Miles of Life, that I, it really began to click. I decided I, would, I wanted to work with the top players in Nashville and see what that experience was like. And that, that opened my eyes to the level of musicianship and the whole Nashville studio experience, which was so well-oiled and so, you know, really, you know, the players were just so good. And so uh, that was, you know, that was one of those things. I was like, okay, the bar is set very high. Um, I can do this, but I got to like dig in a little bit. And, uh, you know, I started playing with Sam Bush and, you know, he invited me to play with him at Telluride. I began to get involved in the jam band world a little bit, jam, you know, playing with a bunch of cool jam band artists. And then, um, you know, I started to get this Americana Roots Music uh, community and I was involved in it. And, and I met musicians who had the same early influences that I did. And I started to see that, hey, I can go back to my earliest influences before Daryl 
and use that to go forward. That was the, the key that unlocked that. But, you know, using those early influences, but through the lens of who I am today, with the experience I have, my playing ability, my singing ability, you know, all at a higher level because of my experience. Can you tell me a little bit more just about the Nashville sessions and how you just how different they were? I mean, it sounds like the the level of musicianship I understand in Nashville is is probably second to none in the maybe in the world. You have to take it in this context. Up until the time I started making my solo albums, I had never played in another band except the Hall and Oates band. And the only music I really played was Hall and Oates music. So <laughs> You know, I, I kind of had it down. Then, <laughs> uh, <yeah. laughs> um, you know, so on, in 2007, I had this song I wrote that I really wanted to do it in a really organic bluegrass kind of style, even though it wasn't a pure bluegrass song. But I knew I wanted to treat it that way. So I hired <laughs> Sam Bush, Jerry Douglas, and Bela Fleck, and Mark Fine, a fame to play bass, upright bass. Amazing. It's a good place to start. So I walk in the studio with this little song I wrote on acoustic guitar, my little finger picking song. And I'm sitting there with these guys. And from the moment we began to learn the song, start to play, I went, "Uh Oh, this is a whole other thing happening here. And I had better get my act together because these guys (laughs) are playing on a level that I have never experienced. Honestly, it was a really eye opening moment. And uh, sure, I mean, because I wrote the song and because I was kind of driving the bus, you know, what it was, they just took it to another level. But the musicianship and, and what really struck me and, and you, I can see you're a guitar player and you'll understand what I'm talking about, was how they listened to each other and how they listened to each other and played together and off of each other and how they complimented each other and supported each other when the other people were soloing. That was a really eye-opening thing for me to, to experience. And it was uh, something that I, I said, okay, I see what's going on here now. I've got I've to get my level up there. And I began, to be honest with you, uh, I began to practice. I began to really woodshed. I really began to dig back deep into the into the early influences, my Mississippi John Hurt, Doc Watson, Sunhouse, you know, Reverend Gary Davis. I began to play all that stuff. Again, because I knew it and I knew it inherently. I'd been playing it for years, but it was so much in the background of my musical life that I said, I'm going to bring this to the foreground. And as I dug deeper and deeper, I got better and I began to realize that this was a a direction I could take. That's really cool. And you can tell, I mean, the album that came out in 2018, Arkansas, which I think we should talk about. This is, it's a real kind of tribute to the music you're talking about. And I know Mississippi John Hurt is a big part of that. What was the road from like that time in the studio to getting this band together and and feeling like you have your own kind of, you know, musical identity again with this different band? Well, the band came together because of the Arkansas album. What happened was I never intended to make that album. I love being in a studio and I would, I just go in. I have a very good friend who has a, an amazing studio a few miles from where I live. And, you know, we have a great relationship and he's an amazing guitar player and an amazing producer and an engineer. And it's one of those things where I just go in there and make music, you know? Um, so I wanted to make a Mississippi John Hurt tribute. I thought maybe he, maybe it'll be an EP and I'll put it out or whatever, you know? So I went in there, recorded a couple songs in a very traditional, authentic way. And I was like, yeah, all right. So, so I can do it. What's, you know, a lot of people can do it. And then I thought to myself, I wonder what these same songs would sound like with a band, because they're always associated with the, you know, the solo guy on with his guitar and his voice. And I said, but not just like a traditional blues band. I said, I want to do something different. I want to, combine instruments that you wouldn't normally associate with this music. 
So my first call was Sam Bush. And I said, if I can get Sam on this record, we're already on third base. And all I got to do is hit a home run and we're good. Um, so, He's amazing. Yeah. So, um, and then I had Guthrie Trapp, who's a monster lead guitar player and who I played with many times in different groups and stuff. Steve Mackey, one of my favorite bass players, a guy named Josh Day, who's who started playing with me in an acoustic setting as a percussionist. And he plays percussion as well as drums. And then I got Russ Paul, who's one of the foremost uh, pedal steel players, but he's not, you know, he can play country traditional, but he really is an innovator. He invented like things that he's done with his pedal steel, special effects and delays and all kinds of cool stuff. So he can play a lot of really unique things. He plays with Dan Auerbach uh, and does a lot of sessions top-notch session player and then i heard this amazing young cellist playing with sarah jerose uh named nat smith nathaniel smith who ended up being in the casey musgraves band mm-hmm. um, and i heard him play one night and i literally after the show i just went up to him and i said man dude you are incredible i said why don't you come over to the house he came over to the house and yeah i played together and i just knew he was something special so i combined a cello and a pedal steel and a mandolin with like a rock rhythm section mm-hmm with me predominantly on acoustic guitar. I played a little electric, but mostly acoustic. And um, I put the band together, did not know what was gonna happen. And I said, well, let's start with a, with a real classic Mississippi John Hurt song, Stacko Lee, you know, Stagger Lee. Yeah. I didn't tell them what to do. I literally said, look guys, I'm gonna play the Mississippi John Hurt part on the acoustic guitar, have at it. And here we go. And we played that song and we cut it, you know, played it a couple times and we said, that sounds pretty good. Let's go in and listen. We walked in the, in the control room and we played it back. And my engineer friend said, John, I don't know what you want to call this, but this is freaking amazing. Just keep doing this. Whatever this is, keep doing it. So I said, <laughs> guys, are you available? Let's go. We cut four tracks that day. We came back um, two more times, cutting three and four tracks per day. Mm-hmm. That was the whole album. And there is not one thing on that album that was fixed. I mean, what happened in the studio? Of course, you know, we crafted the tracks. We played three or four or five, six takes until we got it exactly the way we wanted it. But there was no overdubs and there's no this and that. I, I sang live for the most part. And then I fixed a couple of the vocals. But that was that was the Arkansas album. And once that I had that album, and then, of course, the theme of the album extended beyond Mississippi John Hurt. It was like, well, what was he listening to in 1929? What was on the jukeboxes? What was the first million selling record? You know, it became a, an exploration of the early days of American popular music in the early days of radio and phonographs. I didn't know it was going to become that until we started doing it. Um, and I wrote a couple of originals. And so that was the band. And um, of course, I couldn't get Sam all the time because he plays all, he has his own group that he's playing. And of course, Nat was out with Casey Musgraves. But the core rhythm section of me, Guthrie Trap, Steve Mackey, Josh Day, and uh, Russ Paul on Pedal Steel, we went out and toured a lot. And whenever we could get Sam, we'd get Sam. He'd jump in. Whenever we get Nat, Nat would jump in. Um, so that happened for two years. And the band got better and better and better. The arrangements got, well, you know, you've probably played in a band. You know what happens when you play live. You keep getting better, you know. Things click, you know, things tighten up. Um, and so in, in January of this year, um, I, I thought I was going to be on a giant Hall & Oates tour, you know, before the world imploded. Yeah. Um, and I thought, you know what, Let, let's, let's do a live show. Let's record it because the band is playing, you know, in, in as good as it's ever going to be. And I didn't want to lose that you know, that thing that, that we had, we had uh, come up with. 
Yeah. Um, so we booked the station in, which is a great little venue downtown in the Gulch in Nashville. And I uh, took them in there and we played. We had a magic night, got it all on tape. And the live album, I had it in the can. And when the Whole Notes tour got canceled, I said, hell, I got, got a great record here. I'm going to put it out. And here again, there is not one item changed on that record. Not one note is different. That's amazing. That's exactly what happened that night. That's amazing. It's really cool. It's a good compliment to the studio album. I mean, a really cool live album. I didn't realize that every every song on there sort of had a connection. Yes. The bulk of the set is based on the Arkansas album. But we added songs because, you know, when you're on tour for two years, you get bored playing the same songs over and over. So we kept saying, oh, let's try this. Let's try. So we added the Don Gibson song. We added the Johnny Cash song, um, which I rearranged the way Johnny Cash originally wrote it. He originally wrote Big River as a uh, blues but Sam Phillips at Sun Records said, no, no, it's got to be an up-tempo country song. So I said, well, why don't we try it as blues? Just you know, kind of in my mind, imagining if Johnny Cash might have had something like this in mind. Yeah. You know, just using, yeah, that's, my, using that's my, fun. Art, my artistic freedom to, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. to take some chances. And, uh, you know, and so on and so forth. And that's how I added other songs to the record. You've talked about a lot of different genres, and it seems like you move pretty easily through genres. You've been you've been on Jam Cruise, you've been at Bonnaroo, you've played with Del McCurry and Sam Bush and other bluegrass legends. I know you know our friend Maggie Rose, yeah. um, who, who's down there. She did an interview for this show for the last season. Um, how do you view these different genres? Do you see them as as distinct, or do they seem more interconnected than than people give them credit for? I've never seen different styles of music as being much different from the, from other styles. Sure, the uh, you know the the characters change, the the instruments they're holding in their hand may change, and I think it occurred to me as a little kid. You know, I used to go to the Uptown Theater in the '60s and see the greats of soul music. You know, I saw Sam and Dave and Otis Redding and the Miracles and Temptations, and then I saw Doc Watson and you know Sonny Terry and Brownie McGee and all that. I saw that this music that emanated from the deep South, you know, the roots of American music, how it evolved into rock, into R&B and soul and rock and roll. And so it, it always seemed to be a, a continuum in a sense. And I see it that way. You know, I still see it that way. I, you know, people always ask me what kind of music you like. And I say, well, I like everything, but I really like songs. Um, I can listen through the production. I can listen through the type of instruments they're using to hear the song underneath all that. And that's what's important. It seems to me that these genres are becoming even more um, blurred, which is good because people yeah, just good. like to play music, yeah. you know. You wrote a book that you mentioned called Change of Seasons in, in 2017. And there's a lot in there, a lot of reflections Given, I guess, the additional time you've had during the quarantine, have you been doing more reflecting? Have you been doing more writing? What have you been doing for the past however many months it's been? I've written more songs in the last four months than I've written in the last four years. Wow. It's so funny. Yesterday when I was doing this uh, show with my old friend Todd Sharp, we were all talking about, I was talking to the other musicians. I said, everybody said, we're so damn busy, but nobody's making any money. <laughs> <laughs> everybody's like working their ass off, but nobody's making any money. Um, it's funny. Uh, it's not funny. It's terrible. But um, but what happened was I started, uh, you know, I wasn't comfortable with Zoom and stuff like that. I, I didn't know. But I got involved with a lot of younger artists who were doing it and said, yeah, yeah, we can do this. And, and it started working. So I began to do a lot of Zoom sessions. And then an old friend of mine reached out to me um, 
with a movie project. Uh, and he asked me if I could come up with a song for his movie. And he sent me the script and he sent me a clip. And I, it was a really cool movie. It's called Gringa. And you can check it out on gringamovie.com. And it's a story of a young girl who, who uh, goes to search for her father in Mexico. And um, so I wrote this song and uh, I took a shot at it. And uh, he, he came back to me and he said, this song is the movie. He goes, you, you nailed it. And I was like, okay. He goes, you want to do anything else? I said, yeah, let's, let's try for some other stuff. So eventually I, I become the executive producer of, of the movie soundtrack. And I've got five songs in the movie. So it was like this thing just exploded. So uh, that movie's going to come out, if not at the end of the year, at the beginning of next year. And uh, it's a great movie. And uh, I, I think the songs are going to be really cool. And they're going to enhance the vibe of the movie a lot. That's really cool. We'll link to it in the show notes. Um, we've gone through your entire life up to this point. <laughs> and you've, you've been in so many different phases of music. I mean, you were there at the beginning of rock and roll, as you described at the beginning, through your career. And do you have any reflections that you haven't kind of expressed in the interview so far on like your journey? Or, or has this interview brought anything up that you hadn't thought about in a while? I'm just curious. Well, you know, I just honestly, I'm just so grateful that I um, that the success of Hall and Oates has given me this platform to basically do whatever I want to do artistically. And I think really it's a goal of any creative person to have artistic freedom. I think that you know it's kind of a cliche, artistic freedom. You know, everyone bandies that around, but the reality of it is, very few people ever attain that for any any number of reasons. And because I I, I really do have that. I don't take it for granted. I actually want to work harder because, you know, when you get something precious that uh, that perhaps a lot of people would aspire to and perhaps a lot of people may never attain, you don't want to take it for granted. You want to, I want to actually work harder because of that. So I'm, I'm, I'm here. Uh, I'm healthy enough. My brain's still working. My finger's still working. I can still sing. It's a, it, I'm good. Well, I'm looking forward to hearing a lot more music. I really, I really enjoyed Arkansas and, and the Thanks. Live from Nashville album. And um, our listeners should stick around because John is going to play a few songs, which are which are really amazing. So, thank you so much for taking this time. It's been really fun. All the best to you. Thank okay, you. Okay. Bye. All right. See you. And now here's John Oates performing the Creole Bell Spike Driver Blues Medley by Mississippi John Hurt. Had I Known You Better by Daryl Hall and John Oates, and Send Me Somebody to Love by Percy Mayfield. Hey everybody, John Oates here, and uh, playing Mississippi John Hurt's original guitar that uh, he played at the Newport Folk Festival in the early 60s. So uh, I think it would be fitting that I play a couple of uh, his classics, right?
Bike Driver Blues. Mississippi John Hurt guitar on the first two Hall and Oates albums, and um, on the Abandoned Luncheonette album, I played it on this song right here. It's called Had I Known You Better Then. Were you ever so in love you couldn't wait to get to sleep and dream about the one you wish was there beside you? In the past few days, I've grown. Giggles on the phone How we hug So nicely oh, From the first time First time that I Saw you Had I known you better Then would have Said those three old words And from the first time First time that I Saw you Had I known oh, Known you better then now I'm gonna move away to another town, another crazy day. I wanna stay and maybe hang around. I call it luck, call it fate, call it a chance if we ever met too late in love's life. And from the first time, first time that I saw you. Said those three old words And from the first time First time that I saw you Had I known, oh, I've known you better than 
Percy Mayfield song. Please send me someone to love. Heaven, please send all mankind understanding and peace of mind. Thanks for joining us. Past, Present, Future Live is hosted and produced by RJB. The executive producers are Adam Kaplan and Kirsten Cluthy. Production, editing, mixing, and original theme music by Brad Stratton. This podcast is presented by Osiris Media. Please visit OsirisPod.com to find more content and deepen your connection to the music you love. 